Hello and welcome to Welcome Home Radio. The waters in the mortgage industry can be pretty muddy. Whether it's investing, leasing, renting, home insurance, or myths and misconceptions, Welcome Home Radio has the answers for you, the consumer. And now, to help you make the right home buying decision for you and your family, here are your hosts. Good morning and welcome to Welcome Home Radio on this October 26, 2022. Today we're going to talk about the good, the bad, the ugly on leasing. Maybe throw in some buying information, interest rates, all sorts of different conversations. And we have a great guest today, Randy Dickin from Dynamic Realty Partners. Randy, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. And of course, Tom Holm, the man, the man of the show. And see oh. how much I look up to him. It's awesome. Versus the girl of the show, or exactly oh, right back to Dorothy's heels. I got it. All right. Whatever it deals with, you know. Right. <laughs> since we were talking about Dorothy's shoes earlier, let's make sure we understand they are located in the Smithsonian. If you want to go look at them, so did you see just, them? Yeah, if you want to see them. Oh, cool. They're at the Smithsonian, Washington D.C. But we asked Randy to be here, not for shoe uh, advice, but for leasing advice today, which I'm looking forward to hearing some of his information or all of his information he got. He is an instructor with Champion School of Real Estate. He teaches the classes on um, uh, leasing and uh, property management, and specifically uh, for those people that want to become landlords and uh, want to manage their own properties, I'm hoping, hoping Randy will actually address some of these, uh, um, some of the pitfalls that you may run into managing the properties yourself or just being a property manager itself. I'm sure he has some good stories for us as well today. So, Randy, let's start off with how do people get hold of you? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the easiest way is by phone number, text. Um, can I get my number? Yes, please. 817-781-5353. And my email address is we sell homes at randydicken.com. So I guess Tom and, and Randy both, Tom, because you do own homes that you lease out. And Randy, you teach it and manage them. And so what is, what does somebody, when somebody comes to somebody like you guys and says, look, I've got a home, you know, we're doing pretty well. I was thinking of maybe getting into this whole, I want to be a landlord thing and buy a house or two. Um, where do you start with that conversation? Do you, can you maybe help our audience understand that in case somebody in our audience is thinking of doing just that? Where does one start to, to just start the process? Absolutely. You know, the, the um, when a person says, I want to get a house or two, that's actually the most dangerous place to be. They need to get multiples, get one, get two, get three, get four, and get them as quickly as you can. Because if, if you have one rental and it's empty, then you're paying the mortgage. 
unless of course you have the cash, but um, having multiples, if one goes down for a minute, then you have the others to cover it. So the only thing you're losing is some profit. You're not actually having to pay the mortgage out of your pocket. So getting more than one as fast as possible is, is actually um, a better way to go. So um, I guess when you start, you buy your first one mm -hmm. and um, there's a way to do that right and probably a way to do it wrong. What's the right way to start? Well, uh, you know, there was a young man in one of my classes um, that he was 24 years old. He owns six duplexes, both sides. And he started with one and he turned that one into another and another and another. And um, quite frankly, if, if we can get, if, if a person is determined to get into owning property, um, then, you know, getting around people who do own property and hearing their stories, because sometimes the stories you get educated by them, both the good stories and the bad stories. Do it this way. Don't do it that way. Um, I have a, another student that uh, she's, she immigrated here from Moscow about a decade ago. And in 10 years, she owns now eight properties. And, um, and she did it. She's, you know, she's a citizen here, but, but she's not, um, um, she's young and, and, buys houses. So, I mean, it's really, uh, it's actually quite fun once you get started. And, yeah. and, you know, of course we all hear the horror stories about the bad tenants and they are out there, but it's not the majority of them. If you screen them right going in, you don't have as big a problem when it's over. And, um, you know, there's always one, but, <laughs> but they're the ones that scare people, you know, somebody destroys a house or whatever. And, and uh, it does happen, but it really comes down to screening on the front end to save you from um, having a bad tenant during the lease. So do you find or advise that people starting out in this um, investment of home business, they own their own home first and then they branch out? Or do some just, they're renters, they have rent mentality and they say, I'm not buying a house, but I'm going to buy other houses to rent out. Is there, a, is there anything to that? You know, there's there's more than one way to do it. And there are there are um, there are people out there that actually instruct people not to buy a home uh, first, that they should, you know, invest in other things first. Um, you know, most of our millionaires in the United States, there's two things that are true. One is that they're made in one generation. And the second is that it's done through real estate that those two are are facts. Um, I think the big thing, it's not whether you buy your home first or your rental properties first, but don't buy the big house for your home first. Because once you get trapped into, you know, I've got this huge house and I have to work to support it, uh, then you don't have enough money left over to do the investing. So, you know, start with something small. Listen, there's uh, buying a second home. Uh, now, I'm not a loan officer, but uh, I've, I've had multiples of students that will buy a second home and then they rent the first one out. And uh, it, it saves them having to put down the 20, 25 percent. 
and and so then they can begin to expand there. So there's yeah, I, multiple I, ways to do it. I've seen the Airbnb business kind of come in and affect this too. I I work with some clients that buy houses to be you know Airbnb, mm -hmm. uh, and that's kind of a cool thing. Well, I have a student I talked to the other day, and you know I interact with the students all the time. But uh, this lady and her husband, they bought a home that they live in and they have an RV. Now, in they would rent out their home as an Airbnb. And while that was happening, they would go stay in their RV. And then when they were living at home, they would go and rent out the RV. So, I mean, they always had a place uh, to stay and always had, had one to rent. And uh, of course now, and she just said this the other day that with this, the hurricane that came through with, uh, in Puerto Rico, yeah. T-Mobile actually has rented their RV for 90 days at the daily rate. Man, that's, I mean, that's like buying a brand new RV. Yeah. And if they tear it up, then their insurance will cover it and they'll get a new one. So, um, you know, there, there are multiple ways to get into renting and owning stuff. So Tom, we all know you teach and, um, you also lease. So, or landlord. So did, was that your experience? If you can share it, did you buy one or multiple quickly? Or, um, I think what Randy's advice is very good because, you know, if you if you've got one and you have problems, then you really got problems. <laughs> so, is that kind of the rule you followed when you were growing your business? Well, uh, there's uh, several points Randy makes that I, I kind of want to build on. The first one being, uh, I think it's really sage advice to make sure that you're not buying your first house and going to be burdened with that first house as far as it being a money pit. And I tell people that buying a personal residence, your own primary residence, your house you're going to live in, your homestead, is a money pit, period, end of story. So don't look at buying your own personal residence as an investment. That is not a smart way to go about investing in real estate and building generational wealth for you and your, your family. Uh, it's great to have a nice house. It's great to be able to keep up with the Joneses, but that's what they end up being is keeping up with the Joneses. I know when my neighbor next door had the tile man out front, the next thing I know is my wife's talking with the tile man next door, having him come over and measure our bathrooms and five, $10,000 later, it's like, okay, what just happened here? So that is that is the first sage advice I want to make and uh, support with Randy. The second thing is that when you ask about the process of getting there, my first house, uh, I still own it. Well, I don't own the very first house I still bought, but the, the house that my daughter was born in several years ago, um, we did, I had saved up enough money to buy the house you know that I was going to go to next. And it was nothing but logical for me to say, okay, I want to turn this into an investment property. And of course, uh, there was pushback and that type of thing when sometimes, you know, this is something you've got to get your partners on board with. And Randy talked about his young folks in his class doing this. I mean, if you can do it on your own from the very beginning, that's the perfect way to do it. Buy units, six units and 
buy a fourplex or buy a triplex and live with your, you know, your neighbors. And then as you get used to being a landlord, you can continue to progress and buy the next house and that type of deal. Uh, but the house that I go back to that I, that my daughter was born in, I still own that house and it's, you know, paid over itself five or six times. Um, I've gone to that house and once it got paid off, I could go and take cash out of it. I've done that to buy other properties. Uh, those, those are the types of things you start doing to use the housing that you have accumulated to leverage into the next house and the next house and the next house. So again, very good advice to take that first house, make it very conservative, standard, you know, and, and set your limits as to what you want to have as far as the type of property. I, I typically always get three bedroom, two bath. I just sold a three bedroom, one bath house, not just too long ago this year um, because uh, it was getting into the situation where, you know, it was, that's outdated. I, I, I still could get good rents on it, but there's just too much work that needed to be done to get it to a standard three bedroom, two bath house and made good sense for me at the time. And I still noticed the investor still hasn't put that back on the market when he was going to fix it up and everything. I'm kind of laughing like he's got all the headaches I had. <laughs> oh, oh, well, well, the show is called the good, the bad, and the ugly. So it is called the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll call that one ugly. <laughs> Definitely. You know, the the um, um, using your equity in your home to actually buy another property. I have a client that his uh, his son was going to UNT and he, he took out a HELOC on his on his home. My client did. And he bought a home up in uh, Denton. It was a four bedroom, two and a half bath. And he put his son in the master bedroom with, you know, has its own bath. And they rented out the other three bedrooms to two students each. And so those six people not only paid the, uh, the mortgage on the, the home that they're living in, but also paid back the HELOC. And when he graduated from uh, UNT, they sold the house. And they had all the all the equity that had been built up and it finished paying off the HELOC and he was able to buy his wife a brand new BMW. So, I mean, that kind of stuff absolutely happens. Um, I was talking with a young lady yesterday and um, she's expecting. And I said, you realize that if you bought a rental house when your baby is born, that by the time that kid goes to college, that 18 or 19 years later, that rental will have paid for their college education because the tenant is going to pay down the mortgage and the you're going to have appreciation. And that may not be Harvard, but you can still pay for college. I have a friend that actually did that, put his kid through UCLA, no loans because he bought a house when he was a baby, made all the difference in the world. That, those are good stories there. I mean, there, there are some good stories and I know investors that have done very well and I've worked with them for years. And um, inevitably though, we were going to talk about some ugly and some bad. So to me, what's a little ugly and bad is the phone calls I get every week asking me or text, do you have any houses off market? Do you have this? Do you have that? And they're bird dogging. That's a kind of a slang. I'm sure you've all heard it. 
Um, and then you have actual in, people that want to invest that don't quite know how to do it, calling up, asking the same questions, and you kind of go after 60 seconds of them talking, did you just go to an investor course? Do you have the books? Did you buy the tapes, you know, or did you buy their online access or whatever they have? Um, so that's out there, right, Randy? Oh, it's absolutely out there. And um, and there's ways to do to to learn investing. You can buy your education, which at Champions, we have an invest real estate investments course. Um and, you know, it, it is, uh, it's very good. In fact, I know the instructor for that course. I talked to him this morning in the mirror. And uh, how's it doing? <laughs> the, anyway, the, the, you know, getting people excited about investing in real estate uh, by telling them the stories. And the only thing that I really try to do is inspire them that, you know, you too can do it. You absolutely can invest in real estate. Now, can things go sideways? Sure. Um, I got into property management because of the last uh, recession that we went through. I had a whole bunch of listings. We couldn't sell them. And so I said, well, then I need to learn property management so that people don't lose their homes. And that's, you know, and that's how I actually got into it. And uh, it was a baptism of fire. Because it, you know, they don't give money away and you got to get a little bit of a thick skin when you have, when you're renting out property, but, uh, it, it made money for all of my, uh, clients and it, it can go well. Now, yeah. on the other hand, if you have an empty house and a squatter moves in, you got to get them out. Yeah. Or, you know, sometimes if they don't obey an eviction, um, then you have to do a writ of possession and you have to get an armed sheriff out there to help you get them out of the house. So yeah, well, there are people that can cause you problems. Tell us about that eviction process. I know that a lot of people and maybe our listeners here today uh, being, and if they are tenants may have deferred their rent and so on. And, it, and of course with COVID, there was a lot of grace period out there. I even gave my tenants at one point, I wrote them a letter and said, I'm going to let everybody give me half rent this month uh, simply because I don't know what the future looks like. And so I'm a pretty nice landlord, but <laughs> to say that, but on the flip side of that, tell, tell us about the eviction process in Texas. What is the first step? And as a landlord, what would you have to do? I have a nephew that um, he was listening to a broadcast that was you know, advocating, you know, saving, 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 because they said that the, that when you rent, if you, if you pay your month's rent, you're not in debt. And, and I told him, I said, well, that's really not true because you signed a contract. So let's say you have a $2,000 a month uh, rent. Uh, that's a $24,000 contract. And just because you paid one month, you still owe the balance. So paying rent doesn't mean you're out of debt at the end of the month, you know, after you pay that month's rent. And, and he, he asked me, so what happens if it, if everything just goes upside down and my life just is a mess, we all lose our jobs and all that. And I said, so you're asking me about safety and security. And he said, yeah, well, in a, in a rental, 
if you rent is due on the first and by the morning of the fourth, you're going to owe late fees and they're going to give you a three day notice. So on the morning of the eighth, the landlord is going to, if you still haven't paid, the landlord's going to go down to the courthouse and is going to file for eviction. And um, generally speaking, they can get you out of there before the end of the month. You have, if a person gets behind in rent, they have less than a month um, to, to stay there and they're going to be thrown out. But you can't evict a homeowner. You have to foreclose and foreclosure doesn't start for 90 days. And then after that, uh, it can take a minute and you have, they have to give you the opportunity to cure the note because you're an owner. So there's greater security in owning a house rather than renting. Um, but yeah, I'll, I, eviction happens, um, but it's not the majority. It, it, it is when you hear the horror stories, yeah, they, they, they're bad, but it's not the majority of, of, of tenants. Most of the time it's good people that want to, you know, have a life and they want to get ahead in life and they're really struggling and trying and all that. Um, and I have found that um, if they take care of stuff and if you inspect things on a regular basis, you end up with good tenants. So just out of curiosity, because you're both in the know on this, what percentage roughly come to you, go out and give it a go, not just you specifically, but in general, other people that do what you do or, you know, other professionals like yourself that actually make it. Because um, the public's heard of flippers, people that try to come in and buy a home, fix it up and sell it really quick for profit, buy another one, blah, 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 blah. So you hear a lot about that not working out very well for people that go to these courses and try to figure it out on their own. You hear a lot of stories about that. But a true investor of homes who sees a long-term plan, I would think the probability of them being successful is a little higher than, say, somebody just wants to flip. Um, is that just pretty common knowledge? Depends on, on the individual and depends on the market. Um, there's a lady that... Um, she was in our class and she actually just got her license the other day uh, while she was waiting for her license. She was able to wholesale a bunch of properties. She didn't. I mean, she's not a realtor. She's an individual and uh, she wholesaled uh, and her net was multiple houses, $277,000. Can you explain for our audience what, that means in the real real estate world, you hope she sure. wholesaling. Let's say that I find a, a deal on a property and it's it's more work than I know how to do. So I get a I get a good contract on it. Uh, let's say the house fixed up could be worth four hundred thousand, and I get a good deal on it. But I'm not a contractor, um, so I, I I take my contract. The state of Texas says I can sell that contract to Tom and I could make a little bit of money and then he could fix it up and, um, and then either keep it or sell it and wholesaling it. You got to leave some meat on the bones, but it's basically saying, I found a good deal. I'm going to make a little bit of money here and I'm going to give it to somebody who knows what they're doing at that level. So she was a cash buyer. 
she didn't have to have cash. Okay. All, all she did was write the contract and then turn around and sell it to somebody else. You can sell a contract yeah. because you have, this is a little deeper than you probably want, but when you have a contract, you have equitable estate. You can sell a contract. Excellent. For, uh, let me, let me rephrase that. You can sell a contract for goods. And do you have to write that as an and or assigns to technically yeah. make it that way? Absolutely. And or assigns. And it puts the, the initial seller on notice that I, I may absolutely sell this thing. Sell this to somebody else. Yeah. Sell the contract. Is that very common or is that kind of a something on the side a little bit? You know, the, I, we get a lot of, a lot of students that come in and they'll say, you know, oh, I really want to get into investing. And it, and, and it, even out in public, you'll have people like the ones that have gone to the seminars. They'll call up and they'll say, you know, if, if you find a good deal, let me know. Well, good deals aren't usually found. They're made. And um, it's not it's not luck. It's diligence. There was a, one of the students and uh, he'd had his license for under two years. And I asked him, so how's it going? And he said, Oh, I've closed 40 houses. And I said, really, what's your secret sauce? And he's talking about, he's talking about flipping here and, and wholesaling. And, you know, uh, and I said, how did you do 40 inside of two years? He said, I write two offers a day. Now writing two offers a day isn't it. That's not fun. Uh, we like to look at the, you know, fixer upper and property brothers and all that kind of stuff and go, oh, that's the fun part. Yeah, well, it's fun to be wealthy, but it's it's diligence that gets you there. And he was able to do 40 transactions inside of two years in the seller's market. This was just recently. And. Um, I saw a statistic the other day from Texas Realtors that in Tarrant County alone, fully half of all the properties, single family residents that have been sold, have been sold to investors. The deals are there. It just takes somebody to get out there and, and talk to people. And that's part of the problem. <laughs> well, you were you, you touched on something cool about investors. And, it, and I'm sure you've seen in that seller's market a year ago. Um, there was actually asset management companies out there buying properties. Absolutely. And they were, they were not necessarily getting a deal, a lot of those. Um, so there's both, I think, in a seller's market. I, they know long term they're going to do fine. And they were still competing in a very tough market. Uh, yes, that's true. And, and here's what they would do. Um, first of all, they wouldn't pay the you know, twenty five and 50000 over value because that wouldn't make sense, but they would let the parade go by. There would be a, a house come on the market. And after all the initial rush, if it was still there after three weeks, they would make a full price offer and get it. Yeah. yeah and, it's, been a, it's been a different, so what have you seen property management wise, um, getting into the investor of homes wise, what's the last year been like for you during this transition of, interest rates and um, a moderation of pricing acceleration on homes. We still have plenty of demand here in the DFW area, obviously. Absolutely. But things have definitely changed. 
So uh, you're, so what have you seen as a professional um, in the last year as far as a, a market? I, want, I don't want to say turnover. I want to say change. Right. Well, it, when we went from a buyer's market to a seller's market, a lot of people that had uh, rental property, uh, some sold it and just and took their their cash out. Some did a 1031 exchange and they took one property and turned it into three. Um, you know, some, you know, they did all kinds of things. Um, and with the influx of people into Texas, not only is the, the people needing to buy homes still large, but also people needing to rent because they, they, everyone that comes here has to have a place to live. And yeah, so we touched on that in a show we did a couple of weeks ago about, um, the changing of, you know, builders and asset managers are building neighborhoods. Now you can only lease it. Absolutely. And Absolutely. That's, that's kind of a trend that's popped up in the last couple of years. Can you speak to that at all? Sure. Um, there is a real estate investment trust called fund rise. It happens to be one that I'm in. Um, and I've told people that, you know, if you don't have a lot of money to get into, you can get into fundrise for 10 bucks. Um, but you got to leave it there for five years. But yeah. fundrise, they invest, they have a commercial side and a residential side. And, and I get the reports all the time. They're building um, down toward Houston. They're building in uh, leasing only neighborhoods. And they'll keep it for five to seven years and then sell them. Yeah. Because that's when the money starts to need, you got to put money back into it because yeah. the new has worn off. Yeah. I know there's three, there's three of those in the process now in DFW area. So I think that that's something that's not going to go away anytime soon. So there is a lot of demand here. People come in from all over the country and the world. So we live in an interesting market regionally. We sure do. So Tom, what, what are you thinking as far as, you know, we talked about your prediction on interest rates. They were, I think, good when you said something about, you know, they're going up and they might come down. And when they come down, they're, you know, that becomes a normal thing, you know, 5% versus what's been 8% or whatever. That creates a market in itself. I wonder how that relates to the investing world, um, you know, what are the what are the people that are getting ready to go into the business of buying houses to build up their portfolio? What are they thinking with these interest rates? And are they pausing? Are they full steam ahead? Do they have game plans? Or how's how's that going with those folks? Well, first off, I I want to clarify what I said on interest rates. Uh, I said they're going to change. So I just want to go on record as far as that goes. Um. Sorry. Well, you did say that. <laughs> that was interesting. So, so I want to make sure I'm clear on that. Um, I, I, I will tell you that, you know, um, you know, a property that I had purchased not so long ago when rates were down in the 3% range, I was just like, instead of paying cash for a property, I was like, Okay, I can finance this at three and a quarter for 15 years. Yeah, I want that money. Today, as an investor, 
I would be totally in a different mindset. I mean, if I wanted to get financing, I'd be looking at plus 7% type financing, and that wouldn't be as attractive for me. So uh, I would suggest to investors, if you're going to be looking at uh, becoming a landlord at this point, and you have the capacity maybe to go get a, to a bank and get a prime plus type circumstance, that would be probably a, a more advisable way to do it. Randy, so, I'm sure you're in, in this too. So is that, Tom is spot on on a lot of things. So is that- Oh, absolutely. Of- well, uh, when, the, when the interest rates go up, prices will come down. Right. Uh, and so a person, anybody, when you're dealing with this kind of money, they're going to have to sit down and, and run the numbers. What does it look like as far as uh, monthly payment there, you know, to be able to service the debt? Um, and does it make sense? And if the price is right, um, then the interest rate actually is being paid for. That interest is being paid for by the tenant, not me. Um, now, it won't pay off as quick because of the higher interest rate. So there is, uh, you know, you have to run the numbers and see, do they make sense? Uh, and that's just a math problem. Um, now with the rising interest rates, one of the things we're going to see that we haven't done in 50 years, we're talking Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan era, that We've had declining interest rates down from 17, 18% down to almost two. And so we never did uh, loan assumptions. But in rising interest rates, you can do a loan assumption. And somebody like Tom, who has a 2.75 interest rate, if he decides to sell, somebody could assume that loan and then take out a small loan to cover the difference. And, and those two loans would make one payment and it would be less than getting a new loan. So uh, all the people that have purchased with low interest rate loans, uh, that is actually a selling point. And all of your, uh, your VA and your FHA loans are assumable. And we might want to qualify, quantify and qualify that with they're assumable with investor approval but yes. it's usually kind of a um, rudimentary thing that are just a, a standard thing that the investor will imp- approve you as long as you're putting equity into the house. That's one of the major fields for them. So if you're assuming a loan and you don't have to put any equity, they're going to have to look at you much more closely than you would if you were trying to, uh, uh, in other words, paying the equity down on your down payment. So very, very good point, Randy. I actually had a, a loan officer call me the other day about a loan that he had done earlier or last year. And now some people were wanting to sell the house and, and, and have their loan assumed by the buyer. And he was griping about the mortgage companies, you know, taking forever to get back to him. But there are guidance with uh, mortgage companies that they have to regard as for under Section Six of RESPA, as far as getting back to the bar to the seller of the house in an appropriate amount of time. And he was just being impatient because they they did send back the data and sent back, okay, this is how you go through the assumption process. 
So you're very right on that being the case. Now, keep in mind that the summability factor does also matter if you're owner-occupying, because those loans are given as owner-occupants, VA and FHA, uh, require that you occupy the property. So let me ask a question then. Um, let's say that a person has their home and they want to buy an investment property or they want to buy, let me rephrase that. They want to buy a second home. Can they, let's say that they're going to move from their existing home into the one that they're buying and assuming the loan that now becomes a home and the first house becomes a rental. Can that be done? It could be done. Uh, again, the uh, investor's going to look at it from the standpoint, can you carry uh, the both payment circumstances? That's going to be a question. But if you're occupying and making a primary residence of your assumption, as far as the, this loan you're assuming, that that's what they're, they're really going to look at. They have to also look at credibility. And I was going to mention this earlier. I'm happy we kind of circled back to this. You know, mortgage fraud is a big, big, big deal. And if you have people, and this is something I warn in my investment classes as well, um, since I saw that person that teaches one of those investment classes in the mirror this morning as well. Uh, How's he doing? Yeah, she, she's doing pretty good. Uh, but the uh, uh, one morning I tell my folks that are, you know, young and wanting to go get it and they're using this advice and they're saying, yeah, I can do that. I can assume this loan, get the owner to carry back a second lien and blah, blah, blah. If they don't occupy the property, that's mortgage fraud. And so they must understand that they can't be assuming loans and not going in and living in the property. And that guarantee they're supposed to give is for a year period, not for a month, not for a half a month. And the investor will actually be uh, watching as far as the servicer is considered, uh, is considered. The servicer oftentimes has a group that they actually on a day-to-day -day basis, monitor Airbnb ads and that type of deal to see if a investor bought the property versus an owner-occupant. Okay. And if that becomes the case, they're going to call the note due and payable because it has a clause in there that says, we gave you this mortgage on the basis of you occupying the property. Mm -hmm. So that's that's a business creating another business, mortgage that, fraud, and watching out. There, to watch out for that and uh, to be aware of that. Absolutely, yes. Well, Randy, um, can you tell our audience again how they can reach you? What tell them what you do to all? Yeah, tell do. us what you really do, Randy. Oh, um, <laughs> I my 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 first job, my primary job, is to keep an eye on Tom to make sure he does his job. There you go. Nobody's ever been able to do that. So if you accomplish that, you're know. He's making the big bucks now. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> but if our Actually, audience wants to get hold of you and use your services, just explain briefly what you do and how they can reach you again. Okay. Well, um, I do teach at Champions uh, School of Real Estate and um, love every minute of it. Um, but And I'm also a broker. Uh, and so I have agents that uh, 
that I carry their license. And, but uh, as far as myself goes, I do property management. Um, I, I don't do a lot of selling right now because I can only do so many things. And uh, so, yeah, property management is it. And um, uh, I just love what I do. Um, and if they want to get a hold of me, um, it's Dynamic Realty Partners. My name is Randy Dickin, and my number is 817-781-5353. Well, thanks so much for being here. And um, Tom, thanks for inviting Randy to do that. And it's been a good show. Um, can't wait to do another one. My name's Alan Pace. And I'm Tom Holm. Thanks for coming. And I'm Randy Dickin. <laughs> yes, you are. And uh, that won't change soon. So <laughs> see y'all next time. Take care. Thanks. Uh...